In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here as always, straight from jumping off his couch, my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. I have a question for you, Ryan. What's up? What's up, Mike? It's a big, it's a big question. It's gonna, it concerns a lot of very important things. But first I have to know, are you interested in science by any chance? I, I, as a therapist, I would say it's at least science adjacent. Well, what about aliens? No, I don't know. I'm not a, no. Well, let me tell you about science plus aliens. <laughs> and you can come join me every week where we can talk about science and oh, aliens. Oh, are you trying to recruit me into Scientology? Yes! Oh. <laughs> Got I, it. I, I feel like I'm, I'm already committed to other ologies. I don't like psychology and that they're pretty, uh, pretty at odds with, with Scientology from what I understand. You got to get a good snare symbol roll right there. <laughs> well, that's, that's an honor of, of famous actor, I guess is the best I can give him, uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, what's going on, Mike? Oh, not much. Um, just got back from buying some milk. So pretty eventful night. <laughs> Mike, did you know that the, the 2019 list of the happiest countries in the world came out recently? I did not. So this is a, a list that I'm always fascinated by because um, it, it says a lot about the state of mental health in the world, and in particular, our country. So Happiest wanna, countries? Happiest countries in the world. So this, this organization uh, does a whole big survey. I don't think they interview every person in every country because that would take too long, but they get a representative sample. Sure. And then they come out with the, every year with the happiest countries in the world. They, they list them. So I would like to ask you, what do you think the number one happiest country in the world is in the age of 2019? Um, I'm going to have to say uh, Australia. No, the bugs. Uh, they have lots of bugs. Um, uh, I'm going to go with Ireland. Ireland. Is that are you just trying to suck up to them from my terrible accent a couple weeks ago? Exactly. Yes. Um, no, <laughs> Ireland. I, I, I mean, they're not in the top 10. I'm just looking at a top 10 list. Oh, no. Um, Ireland's close to some of these countries, if that helps. Well, I mean, OK, uh, I don't know. Scotland. No, the Scot, the Scottish are not there either. North Ireland. Is there? That's a thing, isn't it? It's two things now. Northern Ireland is also a place, yes. Okay, this is getting out of control. <laughs> um, so the, the Scandinavian countries consistently lead this list. So I'll give you the top 10. I'll go in, te in descending order, like David Letterman. So 10 is Austria. 9 is Canada, huh. our neighbors to the north. 8 is New Zealand, so close to Australia. Oh, dang it. I almost said New Zealand, too, because <laughs> of uh, Nanette. Uh, uh, well, she's from uh, Tasmania, I think, right? Oh. It's okay. close. It's all close. Sweden, seven. Switzerland, six. It's good to be neutral, I guess. Netherlands is number five. Four, Iceland, which is actually green. Iceland. Right? Iceland is yes, green. Greenland is. is ice. I learned that in Mighty Ducks. Three is Norway, my homeland, my native land. 
proud of that. Two is Denmark, and one is Finland. So the Finns apparently are the happiest country in the world. Oh, wow. Finland. Yes. Okay. What does this even mean, I guess? It, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of uh, different views on why the, these countries are sort of consistently in the top 10. And it's basically, it's not necessarily, and I'm gonna, this is going to be reductive, but it's not that they're super happy. It's just that they're not super sad. They're not sad. And my own personal theory is that it's just like cold and wet all the time, kind of like Seattle, that you're just used to things being not great. So if that's your bottom line, it's just like, yeah, everything's fine. But yeah. <laughs> uh... so they can see that as like as a sort of mentally well, not necessarily okay. experiencing joy. So they're not measuring like their literal happiness, but like their contentness. Which... Well, right. But so so Americans, we most we more closely associate happiness with things like joy and with things like right. passion. Right. Euphoria. Yeah. 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 These more extreme identifiers. Um, and we might rate hot more highly on a scale like that. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think we're in the 20s this year, like 28, 29. And... Hey, you know what? You know, there's like a whole bunch of countries in the world. <laughs> Like 156? Uh, so yeah, so sure, we're in the top 30. I guess that's still something yeah, to be proud of. Not bad. But we, we've actually been consistently falling, though, which is something oh. more concerning. But that might be a topic for another day. So so come on, USA, let's get our, our happiness together, or at least our contentedness. I do have to ask real quick, do we think this has anything to do with language? Um, so my understanding of how of their methods is that they they tried their best to do, you know, like appropriate translation of terms because um, what i'm assuming your point is is that you know different languages have different words for different emotions no no okay what's your point my point is that uh different languages i think actually uh interpret things differently in the brain so mm. literally if you're born with a different first language you actually like on a basic level think in a completely different way about things and interpret the world around you completely different just based on how you, your language is set up. Uh yeah, that that certainly could be a thing. I'm going to write a paper about it. Oh, I would love to see that paper. <laughs> but I think we've we've talked for long enough about the okay, the, the yeah. world, so let's let's talk about the movie we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah, so back to Tom Cruise. But if if everybody uh if you do want to help suggest or uh, you want to talk about mental health or you need support or anything like that, we do have a mental health support discussion group on Facebook. You can find that. Go to Facebook and search Pop Psych 101 Mental Health Chat. And let's get into it. Let's do it. No more questions, do you? No. No more questions. No. No worries, there's not going to be any more questions, okay? Yeah. No more questions, I'll make sure of that, okay? Yeah, right? amen. What? I'm amen. Listen. Man, I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to talk to you again. Because you see, these, uh... Dr. Bruner really likes you a lot, and he's probably going to want to take you back with him. You know? Yeah. But I just want you to know that what I said about being on the road with you, I meant, you know, connecting. I like having you for my brother. I'm an excellent driver. Yes, you are. I like having you for my big brother. Yeah. 
Today, we are covering the 1988 film Rain Man, starring Dustin Hoffman as Raymond Babbitt and Tom Cruise as Charlie Babbitt. When car dealer Charlie Babbitt learns that his estranged father has died, he returns home to Cincinnati where he discovers that he has an autistic older brother named Raymond and that his father's $3 million fortune is being left to the mental institution in which Raymond lives. Motivated by his father's money, Charlie checks Raymond out of the facility in order to return with him to Los Angeles. The brothers' cross-country trip ends up changing both of their lives. Thank you for that, Mike. So up top, um, we should point out that neither of us are experts in autism. Um, I, yes, right away. <laughs> as a therapist, most of my exposure to autism spectrum disorder, which we'll go into more detail about, um, has actually come from working with uh, families or support uh, people, members of the family who are working with or coping with alongside someone dealing with autism spectrum disorder. Um, that's not to say I have not treated people with autism spectrum disorder or just autism. Um, I have, but that's never been the, let's say, primary reason that they were in treatment. Yeah. And I just want to say that like anything that I ask today uh, is is really incomplete ignorance. So I hope that like it can be seen that way. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. offend anybody. Uh, absolutely. And and I think this is this might even be an opportunity, Mike, we've done this before where we've asked people to to call in our number to share their own feelings about a, a movie or something we're covering or even just our episode itself, because we want people to be able to share their own experiences or to advocate for their own causes. So um, this right. might be another example for them to do that, because as we talked about, we're, we're not experts on everything here. We're here to talk about and give exposure to an issue that was portrayed in popular culture. So if you do want to do that, uh, if you would like to like leave your opinion uh, about our show, or just talk about autism or anything, really, uh, I will leave our voicemail number in the show notes. Awesome. So with that being said, Mike, I, I hadn't watched this movie in a long time. Obviously, it came out over 30 years ago. And I have to say, my memory of it was not what it actually was. <laughs> it's not this at all. Nope, nope. I, I'm pretty sure I probably watched it in like 92 or something. Sure, yeah. Maybe the last time I've seen it. What, when you were eight? <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a totally different movie yeah, than yeah, what yeah. I remember. Right. Um, and the thing that I, I think had most forgotten was that Raymond is kidnapped. <laughs> like, yeah. we can't dispute that, right? I know Yeah. Charlie tries to dispute that at the end of the movie, but there's no disputing. Like, he takes him out of the institution and, and leaves. You know, doesn't sign him out against medical advice, just removes him. Yep, they just leave. Yep, they walk down the street, and obviously, there's going to be a we're going to have a, we have a lot wrong with this movie, but that's kind of the the first among many things that we are going to have wrong with it is that if someone's in an institution, presumably they are there for a reason. Presumably they are there voluntarily, or or at least they are accepting of their placement in that institution, and it's never a good idea to just remove someone from an institution. Without consulting their doctor, <laughs> really? That that should go without saying. But oh, dang. Well, okay, but but I should, uh, you know, I say that jokingly. But I, I worked in addiction, and very frequently we would have family members who were, let's just say, sympathetic to their family members 
uh, frustrations, and they would sign them out. What would what we would disguise we would identify as against medical advice. Hmm. So family members do do these sorts of things, and it's it's really one of the worst things that you can do for for someone, especially if you're not consulting their doctor on that decision. Yeah, but Charlie Babbitt has absolutely nothing but bad motivations behind why he takes Raymond away. Yeah, so tell tell us a little bit about his his motivations. Right, right. Well, f- okay, I will because we're gonna start at my at objectively my favorite scene in the entire movie, <laughs> which was the very first scene with the Lamborghini, uh, the Lamborghini, multiple Lamborghinis. Yeah. All right, I won't go into too much detail, but uh, Charlie Babbitt is, uh, I guess, a car dealer. But he's in over his head and losing money on these Lamborghinis. It felt like and a black market, like weird. Yeah. I don't even quite understand it. Like he's secretly uh, obtaining these cars and then selling them at higher prices to rich people. It was weird. That was a weird start. It was weird. And I don't think the director or the screenplay writer thought that was important because what they had there instead of anything that made sense in the opening scene was awesome 80s hair. Yeah. Oh, big time. Hilarious 80s dialogue. Uh, amazing 80s Tom Cruise. Yep. A- and his hair. At the peak of his powers. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the best of all, the mind blowing car phone in Charlie's car. Yeah. So those things. <laughs> well, so Mike, I, I, in reading summaries of this movie, they wanted to portray Tom Cruise as a very specific kind of person during the 80s. And that was a yuppie. Yeah. He's a yuppie for sure. Like, when that Lamborghini came down, I thought he was going to be wearing like, uh, you know, like a white jacket with pulled up past his elbows with a pink shirt underneath yeah, exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like Miami Vice. Yeah. Why do I remember this? Wasn't that far <laughs> from it. Yeah. Especially the the suit scene coming down in the escalator. But we'll get into all that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is Tom Cruise. He's he's this kind of guy and he is going to come into some money. Well, at least he was probably hoping that he would. Yeah. So basically it comes out right away that. He leaves the Lamborghini place and he gets a phone call on the sweet car phone and finds out, uh, unfortunately, that his father died. Now, I say unfortunately, but it was not unfortunate to Charlie Babbitt. He barely flinched, yeah. Barely flinches, and but he does pack up right away and go with his girlfriend, Suzanne. And they go to Cincinnati to go to the funeral. Uh, but then you get the idea that Charlie's there to get what's owed to him. Uh, you find out that the dad and Charlie had a falling out when Charlie was 16 over the fact that Charlie took his father's Buick and without his permission. And so the dad called the cops on him and turned him in for car or grand theft auto. Uh, it's not good. And and Charlie obviously has a ton of resentment. Yeah. So uh, he goes to get the the will from the like lawyer person who's going to give that out. And he ends up only getting the Buick and a bed of roses. And it, it's pretty much nothing. But. $3 million was given to some mystery person. This whole time, just to keep in mind that Charlie is is just the worst. He's not nice to anybody. He's It's all about Charlie the whole time in a very, very like aggressive way. Yeah, part of my language, he's just an asshole. Yes, he, he is an fits, asshole. He fits that, right? He does. And But what ends up happening is he ends up figuring out where this money was given to, and that takes us to... Uh, Walbrook Mental Institution, where he finally meets Rain Man. So he he goes to Walbrook, not knowing that he's going to find Raymond there, 
But basically, he meets the doctor who he sort of learns has the money. Is that basically what happens, right? Right. Dr. Bruner. Yes, Dr. Bruner. You know, Dr. Bruner won't give him any information. And then he finds Raymond identifying this car. And it's Raymond recognizes the car from when he was a kid. And then then it all sort of comes out from there. So Charlie hatches this scheme to essentially kidnap and hold Raymond for ransom to get what he feels is owed to him. Right, right. And, and we have to keep in mind that this is the first thing that went through Charlie's head right after he found out he had a brother he never knew he had. Just met this guy. Yeah. Just met him, had no idea he had a brother, finds out he's his brother, and immediately is like, okay, well, you're coming with me so I can get the money. Yeah, you want to go for a walk? I mean, uh, so it's abusive. It's it's negligent. There's so many problems with just this initial interaction where Charlie is both at the same time completely dismissive of Raymond and manipulative of him and getting him to come with him. So immediately we have a lot of problematic interactions between Charlie and Raymond. Fortunately, what we do see is that it seems pretty positive at Walbrook where he's staying. Yeah. Where Raymond is staying. His needs are taken care of there. Yeah. Yeah. He has a like a nurse named Vern, V-E-R-N, Vern. And Vern seem, has been with him for nine years and knows him very well and all of his uh, rituals and routines. Um, but this is where I, I kind of wanted to ask you, this is something that I've heard, uh, total rumor, I'm sure, but that autism back in this time period was uh, strictly like a psychological issue, which is why Raymond is in a mental institution. Whereas now it's a, a more of a medical thing. That's kind of like what I've heard, and I didn't know if that's right or if it's changed. So, yeah, it's it's not either. This is And this is what we're going to focus on a lot with autism spectrum disorder, is what it's more commonly referred to as today, is that's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of variation in what autism looks like, and there can be a lot of variation in the types of treatment that they benefit from. And the types of treatment that are appropriate for them, again, based on the symptoms that they present with. But so to answer your question, it's neither strictly a medical problem or strictly a mental health problem. It's a complex developmental disorder that can cause problems with thinking, feeling, language, and the ability to relate to others. And there are a lot of, again, variation within those symptoms. But as you can imagine, those symptoms can both cause uh, mental health difficulties. So difficulty relating to others um, may cause problems like social anxiety, all these sorts of things, but may also uh, can present with some medical issues. Um, so poor self-care. A lot of times epilepsy is uh, co-occurring with oh, wow. autism. Yeah. So it, it's it's really problematic and it's a, a complicated problem that even back then, you know, people didn't really know what to do with them. So they put them in institutions. Yeah, so what I was wondering is right away they just show Raymond's room and kind of give you a view of his surroundings and what he's used to and the things that he does every single day. And they make it very apparent that, you know, he's been here forever and this is his life right here and he's very uncomfortable uh, with change. That's one of the first things they tell us about. So, like, what is it like for Raymond being taken by Charlie in this situation. Yeah. So Charlie completely uh, destroys um, Raymond's ability to stick within his system, 
to stick within his routine. So a lot of the struggles that Raymond starts to experience on the road with Charlie are because his systems and his routines are now completely broken up. So, you know, everything from the uh, books that he reads to the television shows that he watched to the types of food that he eats, you know, and yes, people on the uh, autism spectrum do often have these sort of comfortable or repetitive behaviors. So for that to be completely taken away from Raymond is really going to cause a lot of internal and then eventually external or relationship conflict. And the because the the reality with autism is that there's different levels. There's high functioning, medium functioning, low functioning. To give you an idea, Raymond's sort of in the middle, and that's because, and this is the other other side of this is that yes, he is uh, very intelligent in very specific ways. So Raymond also has what we referred to back then, less so now, but still still common is savant syndrome, um, which is basically this very specific intelligence in Raymond's case, the ability to compute complex math and uh, sort of photographic memory. He does. And uh, I do want to just like give a shout out to Kim Peek. So the savant of part of Raymond was based on Kim Peek, a real life person who had savant syndrome, uh, incredibly nice man. Um, pretty sure he passed away in his last few years. I actually thought a lot about Kim Peek and his father. Why I watched this because Kim Peek was taken care of by his father. His his father dedicated his entire life to giving Kim the best uh, the best life he could give him. Anyway, so if you met Kim Peek on the street, he would if you gave him your birth date, he could tell you what day of the week it was on and what the weather was like. I mean, I knew that was real with Kim Peek, and I've seen that before. I mean, I just it's I don't know how does that work. Well, yeah, it's interesting. And in the movie, you know, it, it kind of gets played as this like trick that uh raymond can do and like charlie's superpower yeah charlie's like passingly fascinated by it and then obviously as we get towards the end of the movie he point blank exploits it for monetary gain right when they yeah. go into the the casino but yes these two presentations that raymond is coping with you know the reason that they put him in the middle of the spectrum is that he is able to interact in in some ways but then in other ways he's very uncomfortable so he can't can't give eye contact I'm very uncomfortable with um physical touch physical interaction he makes a note every time it feels like uh charlie touches him even yeah it feels like he's been hurt by him so individuals on the mild end of the spectrum would only have sort of like slight difficulties in navigating social interactions or completing tasks whereas like raymond has some pretty substantial interpersonal challenges and as we talked about, struggles really deeply with change. He does, and which is they, the institution and the psychiatrist call him high functioning. And I thought, I thought this isn't a high functioning person. So I was like, I'm definitely gonna have to ask Ryan about this. He didn't well, seem that, high functioning to me at all. That's where the savant stuff comes in because he is so intelligent in some ways that people could see that as high functioning. That, oh, he can, you know, rattle off uh, multiplications and things like that. But then, and there's the one scene in the movie where the doctor asks him, you know, what's basically like a dollar, half of a dollar. And he, and he says, he doesn't know. He says seven. How much is a car? A hundred dollars. How much is a lollipop? A hundred dollars. So it's this very specific intelligence and, and association with numbers that's limited. So that's, that's why for me. You know, and every time we see him away from Charlie on his own, he doesn't really function. He puts himself in some high risk situations. He, he walks into right, traffic yeah. and gets stuck. 
he interacts with a prostitute, you know, in yeah. um and I think could could have been taken advantage of there if not for for Charlie's intervention. Yeah, this is a crazy trip they're on, you know. Uh, going yeah, across yeah. the country in Charlie's Buick yeah. to get to with the top down. <laughs> with the top down uh to get to Los Angeles. It's yeah. it's just insane. So I just wanted to touch on which is the the high end of the spectrum, which is sort of yeah. I should say the most severe form of autism is when people with more you know, specifically suffer from like the intellectual disability in the sense that might be unable to speak. You know, a lot of times you'll see people on this end actually be mute or they might have extreme discomfort from like sensory uh, input. So light, sound, smells, textures. And they're also, and this is why I think he's a little bit lower functioning, at risk of wandering away from their caretakers. Um, this severe end of the autism spectrum can even unfortunately, result in aggressive or violent repetitive behaviors um, towards themselves or others. Like in one scene, Raymond is banging his head against the wall when right. he's overwhelmed by the fire alarm. So, that, yeah. so that's why I think for me, he's on the, the, the more severe end. How are we able to even tell that these are the same thing? Like the, what you just described as mild and then extreme sound like t two totally different things to me. Yeah. I, and that's like why... The, I yeah. wouldn't be able like if I was creating this mm -hmm. and like making it up in my PhD, I there would be no way I would see the a connection there. Yeah. And and that's why it's it at least that's one reason why people think it's being diagnosed more and more commonly in the last 10, 20, 30 years is because there is this now what we think of as mild autism diagnosis where, you know, it can present in some ways, that's just like severe social anxiety or difficulty in, so, in situations like that, along with, you know, some repetitive behaviors and some things that might resemble tics, things like that. But for me, you know, and obviously there's a risk of overdiagnosis, but and it's actually interesting because I have worked with families, as I said before, you know, if someone finds comfort or if a family finds comfort in being able to categorize the symptoms and presentations that their family member is experiencing, it's really important not to invalidate that. And that's something that Charlie does initially and throughout the movie, frankly, where he basically thinks Raymond is making it up, that he's in there somewhere, you know, that his symptoms are essentially just Raymond getting away with being low functioning and just being able to get whatever he wants. And that's just not true. But the way Dustin Hoffman played him I just because I've seen autistic people in real life and, you know, on videos and TV and everything um, plenty. And like I just have never seen somebody that I guess looked or acted like that, especially like the blank stare thing. Yeah. Um, it did seem kind of like there was like an alien driving a body like it wasn't like a person except for sometimes, I guess. Yeah. So and I don't know if that was realistic. So it absolutely can be. And to speak to your sort of, uh, I guess unsure or confusion about, you know, how can all of these things be autism? And that's, that's why we've arrived at this sort of spectrum understanding is that there are varying levels and varying presentations of the severity of these symptoms. But, you know, things like poor eye contact, poor uh, social interaction are in some ways a hallmark of, you know, autism spectrum disorder. So it's really important to be able to meet the patient, or in, in my case, or meet the person with autism um, where they're at. So, and to, to not, you know, get wrapped up in what you think is real and what you think is not real um, if you're interacting with someone with autism is to, to just accept whatever 
you know, their reality is that they're presenting to you. If they say they need orange juice, if they say they have a favorite television show, you know, and Charlie does start to do some of these things. He starts to help Raymond sort of meet some of these needs. Um, but he does it with this sort of like aggravation and condescension that is is sad, frankly, to see. Yeah, he he's just kind of doing it to be like, okay, and now leave me alone, you know? Yes, yeah. Uh, to get him to de- get him to be quiet. Yeah. Yeah, and stop like, you know, driving him crazy. Yeah. Uh but there is a scene um and, and you kind of mentioned something about this a little bit ago, but the airport scene. Uh he goes and right before they take off for this cross-country drive, they try to fly, but Raymond won't fly, but Charlie keeps pushing him pretty hard to fly. And and Raymond loses it and he starts um, hitting himself in the head. Yeah. And that's something that I've, that I've seen and heard about, mm-hmm. um, but know little about. And I don't know is why or like what's the, I guess, a reason for like that reaction. Yeah. The why is, is really tough to say because we can't really ask Raymond or other people you know, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you banging your head against the wall? The sort of best understanding that we can come to is that this extreme feeling of of, of uh, basically being in danger or being out of control, that these sort of impulsive behaviors are their, the closest thing that they can do to reassert control. And from outside observation, it's like, no, that that's not making the situation better. But that's where the sort of confusion can come in it's like well why are you doing that stop 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 but that's them trying to reassert control so and charlie again this is something that charlie gets better at over the course of the movie that instead of trying to get raymond to stop banging his head against the glass door you know he tries to remove all of the sensory stimulation so he he knocks down the fire alarm he gets the smoke out he tries to just kind of be the solid object that raymond needs to help himself calm down he does. Uh, I never personally thought I saw him doing that for like anything for Raymond. It, I have, no, that's oh, fair. No, so so his yeah. motivation might not have been um, admirable, but the the specific skills that he displays in terms of how we would want a support person to help someone with autism, Charlie does get better at that over the course right. of the movie. So yeah, I do want to acknowledge the fact that obviously family members all over the place are not Charlie Babbitts. Thank God. Yes. However, I would imagine that there is incredible frustration or stress. Uh, they do mention one point in the movie, like if you're going to take Raymond when he's trying to get him uh, back towards the end of the movie, he, they meet with like a psychologist and he's trying to win him from the courts and take custody. And they, you know, they tell him, you know, you're going to have to go through training, that kind of stuff. So I'm just, I'm wondering, you, you've said you've worked with uh, mostly the support person in this situation and like kind of what does that look like? What are they seeking when they need to talk to somebody? Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad because there's, there is so much confusion and there, there can be frustration and anger and fear. So it's, I would say it's typically when I'm working with a support person, not with a person who's dealing with autism. It's really about helping them to uh, really realistically accept the reality of the situation Mm -hmm. and to cope with it both on their own and with their family member in a way that is not going to make the situation worse. Right. Right, Because they didn't they didn't plan. No, of course not. Nope. Nope. You have a kid and this is just now happening to you. 
Well, it's right. And because we don't want to be putting ourselves in a situation where you want to tell somebody, like, you just have to accept this. You have yeah. to deal with it. But that's when I, I said before, we have to meet the person with autism where they are is because, and that's just not to say that people with autism, you know, can't take medication for things like depression or anxiety, but, you know, the medications that they might take, there is no cure for autism. There's no magic pill that's going to, you know, reduce mm. all of these symptoms. There's lots of different types of training and, and treatment that can be helpful. Um, different sorts of environmental supports, school supports, home supports, job supports for people who are more high functioning and capable of holding a job, which is absolutely possible. That it is really about that, that sort of acceptance of like, look, okay, this is the reality. This is their reality. Mm-hmm. And the, the more you resist that, the more you, um, it's not to say that they can't get angry, but the more anger is the sort of way in which you interact with them, much like Charlie, okay. the less progress is going to be made, the the less effective the relationship's going to be. And frankly, right. the the more frustrated you're going to be. I was going to say, the harder you're making it on yourself. Yeah, even. yeah, absolutely. Like just learning how to take a stressful situation like this and figuring out it, you know, through therapy or however you do it, figuring out how to make that water kind of roll off your back and to keep moving forward uh, and just, and not take it in and hold it there. Right. Right. And that it's not, you know, I think a lot of times, I mean, we can get into the whole, you know, anti-vaccination thing, but I think the reason that a lot of people fall into that anti-vaccination trap is because, you know, when they, they learn that their child is autistic that they want something to blame a lot of times. They want right. something to be able to point to and say, this is the reason. And once I have a reason, then I have a justified reason to be angry or justified thing to point to that I can sort of yeah. feel better about the situation. And I wonder if, I wonder if like they have to find that thing and it's something they zone in on because if they don't have that, then their that finger goes back to themselves. Well, right. And, and we're not, you know, we're not uh, certainly blaming parents, um, you know, the, there's no one cause for autism. It's, again, one of these um, developmental disorders that's not entirely understood why it occurs, when it occurs. Right. Um, there is some genetic component. Uh, there is some links to things like low birth weight and drug or alcohol abuse during um, pregnancy, things like that. So so is it possible that parents blame themselves? Uh, absolutely. But and I've worked with parents on this level as well. You know, as soon as that's the 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 angle that you're taking in dealing with this, the less you will be able to interact with your son or daughter as a human and not just as someone with autism. Yeah, you know, and in this movie, they show Charlie, who's with uh, Raymond for six days, six, seven days. Yep. And Charlie thinks he's made these crazy strides. He's gotten to him and and really, you know, made him uh, a really great relationship with each other. And they do prove that that's not true in, in the scene this happens is towards the end of the movie when they're meeting with a psychiatrist. Basically, Raymond has no concept of uh, who's who or where he's at even. It's basically yeah. how they're portraying Raymond. But Charlie, another thing that just pissed me off about Charlie is he's touting all these accomplishments after six days. And I'm thinking about the parents that are 20 years in, 30 years in. Kim Peekstead, you know? Yeah. This is, I mean, his entire life. I guarantee you Kim Peekstead was 
you know, a thousand times kinder to Kim Peek than Charlie was to Raymond. Yeah. So. Yeah. So shout out to the parents that, yeah. that are, 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 you know, in this, this situation because it is a difficult one. There's, there's no question about that. And that's why it requires this situation that requires so much empathy on all parts. You know, being able to empathize with the parents, being able to empathize with the person, with the human being struggling with autism spectrum, wherever they may fall on it, to be able to just accept that that reality and and live within it and to, to create a, a life as much as you can, as much as you can help the person with autism create a life for themselves. It's a it's a grueling process. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't experience love, I think, as Charlie and and Raymond do to some degree. Right. But I don't want to let Charlie off the hook. So yes, yeah, so there, there are a lot of things that, that we haven't gotten to. I know. So I, I want to touch on some of the big ones, the big sort of no-nos um, about interacting with someone who has an autism spectrum disorder. You know, obviously we mentioned like insinuating that they're faking anything. Obviously it's not going to be helpful. Um, getting angry at them, especially putting your hands on them is going to be a for most people with autism, a huge trigger. Really? Yeah, yeah, because it all comes back to the sort of sensory difficulties. And for Raymond, this is definitely true. Even when Charlie tries to give him a hug at the end of the, the Las Vegas night, you know, even in that moment, Raymond recoils and is very uncomfortable. And that's that's hard for Charlie to accept and would be hard for any parent to accept um, that they can't just hug their child in a sort of quote-unquote normal way. But that's that's the reality is that it makes them uncomfortable. So you have to find other ways to to show that affection. What were the other no-nos? So um, don't exploit your brother with savant syndromes, you know, uh, math expertise for financial gain. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Don't do that. And they get pissed no matter off how at cool they make it look three... on scene. Yeah. It, it, oh, my God. pissed yeah. off at him when he loses $3,000. Yeah. See, so and. So this comes back to a big problem with this movie, which is that the sort of interaction and even just Raymond's autism in general is played for comedy. Yeah, that yes. That's why uh, when I'm taking notes on this one today and I was going through like scenes to say, you know, what's important? What do we need to look at? I got the biggest chunk of the movie is them going across the country. And it's I just wrote hijinks. Yeah. Because that's what it is. It's, like wacky encounters. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, he's just... Well, no, using... like they, they go into the random farmhouse to, so he can watch Wapner. And it's like, again, played for comedy. Right. I, yeah. There was one part, though, that wasn't played for comedy. And this is going to get a little more mental health directed here. Because I had questions about the scene um, when he figures out that Raymond is Rain Man. So Charlie has this vague memory from when he's a little kid that he believes is an imaginary friend and he called him Rain Man and Rain Man used to sing to him. So there's a scene where, and he's about to give him a bath in a hotel uh, and there's like hot water coming out and, you know, Raymond has one of his episodes where he mm -hmm. just starts losing it and, and he says, uh, hot water burn baby, hot water burn baby. Uh, and Charlie says, what baby? And then so Charlie realizes Possibly Raymond hurt him when he was a baby, which is why Raymond was institutionalized by their estranged father, which is a whole other thing. Yeah. And so this stuff happened to them. And, and it's, you know, this big scene for Charlie, you know, mm -hmm. Charlie's revelation that 
Raymond was Rain Man all along, and he's loved him his whole life, actually. And he was there for him when he was a baby. But my question was, what about Raymond? You know, like, Raymond doesn't know what's going on and right. accidentally hurts a baby and gets shipped off by his father to go live somewhere when, let's face it, he could live at home. You know what I mean? You just have to have the wherewithal. With proper to, support. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You just have to learn to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but my question was, uh, with mentally health, mental health related, was uh, can somebody with autism experience like the kind of trauma that would like cause a mental health issue? Yeah, a hundred percent. And and to a certain degree shows symptoms of what we might consider pseudo PTSD, right? Whether it's because of these flashbacks or freakouts that he has um, with the bath, whether it's with physical touch or even like by association, you know, Raymond reads about plane crashes, you know, and he sort of gets very threatened by the idea of being on a plane. So to this degree of danger and anything associated with danger being something that's very threatening mm -hmm. in a very real visceral way, um, that absolutely. And, and, and this is the thing I think another time, um, people struggle with and actually a great article was shared in our Facebook group, um, this week and that the sort of ways that people with autism present with mental health issues can be different from what we typically might expect someone with mental health issues really present. Yeah. So, you know, anxiety might not look like anxiety. It might just look like these sort of um, these ticks or these outbursts, right? And realistically, it's just the person with autism trying to establish control because of their discomfort in social interactions, for right. example. Well, actually, I thought that when I was watching the movie, I'm like, when he when he would get really out of, out of control and hit himself, and I'm like, that's a that's a panic attack. Or or even just, the, just him doing who's on first. That's a classic oh, yeah. example of like... If Raymond is anxious, he starts doing who's on first and he repeats this himself over and over and over again because it's a comfort thing for when he's uncomfortable, when he's anxious. Here, there's a side question here. They they did this whole thing in the movie about uh, humor and the fact that he did the who's on first thing and never understood that it was a joke uh, until he saw it on television. And then, you know, he cracks a couple jokes about it later on. I mean, I kind of got the gist that they were trying to say that Raymond's autism causes him to not be able to understand humor. Yeah, so it's actually fascinating. Um, and I won't get too much into the like the brain aspects of this, but um, oh, but why? All right, I'll I'll do my best. Yes, I'm, I'm... <laughs> that's my favorite part. Okay, so one of the things, or the I should say, the theories about autism is that there's a sort of breakdown in the, I want to say it's the corpus callosum, like the part that connects the right and the left hemispheres of the brain. That's what it's called. Yeah. Yep. Um, and <laughs> because of that breakdown, the ability to deduce meaning that's not apparent in language, for example, things like humor, metaphors, idioms, that they can't grasp that. Similes? Similes, all yes. of these things. That they, that they can, yeah, uh, sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that they, that if meaning is not absolutely apparent within communication, that there's just no recognition of what's attempted to being communicated. So it's like, if you were to tell them something like, well, you know, Raymond, a bird in the hand is worth two in a bush. He would just, okay, I don't know what that means or what you're talking about. Like there's two birds now. And mm. this is, this is not like an intellectual disability, but this is literally like a language center breakdown. 
Okay. So, so you're saying that like things get seen in a literal sense? Yes, very much so. Okay. And now is that, would that be like across the spectrum? Yeah, that's, that's pretty typical. Um, you know, the sort of, and that's where some of the, it's the rise that a lot of the social difficulty comes from is because so much of, you know, casual social interaction is what's not being said, what's not being communicated or what's being communicated, let's say sarcastically or passive aggressively. And because of the sort of uh, misunderstanding or, or not clear understanding of the way those things are being communicated, people with autism are more likely to sort of recede because if they don't understand what's being communicated, that's going to be discomfort and they're going to want to self-soothe, they're going to want to, you know, um, avoid those interactions. So I had a question for any parents out there listening who may not have children yet and mm. who will have children sure. who are autistic. Yep. What is a good way or is there anything we can do to see that as soon as possible so we can start learning and, and that kind of thing? Because obviously we know it's not curable. So how, you know, how can we notice that as quickly as possible? So, yeah, so autism usually manifests by age two. And some of the, the hallmarks are things like verbal communication. Um, you know, kids are usually starting to be verbal by, you know, what, age 12, um, 12 months to 18 months. And some of these sort of uh, verbal delays or social delays um, could be signs. So if you have your kid in daycare, for example, um, you can absolutely talk to them about some of these concerns. You can get... If you talk to your primary care physician, you can have them be properly evaluated. And then if they're in the public school system, you know, there can be uh, early intervention and support things put in place to help them with things like verbal communication, auditory issues. Because again, sometimes you have to sort out, are they on the spectrum right. or are there just other sort of developmental issues going on? Well, right. I'm sure it's like if you have an ex uh, someone on the extreme spectrum, it's probably going to be easier to notice, I would yeah. guess. Yeah. Where if you get uh, someone who's mildly autistic, then it might be something that's going to take a little longer to like kind of see that that's happening. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, the sooner you get them linked up with services, the better, you know, right. whether that's a school um, based service where they can help, you know, develop social skills or develop coping skills. Frankly, you know, not necessarily family therapy, but family support so that the parents or siblings can learn to interact with them in a healthy way you know, support animals um, in some cases have been found to be really helpful. So being able to get on that process earlier, uh, the better for sure. Excellent. All right. So I wanted to get back to Charlie. Yes. <laughs> real quick. So what Charlie, he's the worst. What can, what can we do for Charlie? What can we do to change Charlie's outlook and make it to where Maybe he could get custody of Raymond and mm -hmm. realistically do this the right way. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the movie, Charlie is trying to get custody. And as, as far as we can tell, he's doing it for quote unquote good reasons, right? Because he turns down a $250,000 check from the doctor to just walk away. So that's supposed to be the sign of like, oh, Charlie's a good guy now. He's just doing this for good reasons. <laughs> I know you don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> he was still holding okay. out for the money, the rest of it. Um. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, he he did still say, you know, I'll see you in court and the doctor evaluations. Um, and I think they were trying to paint Charlie as someone who was still trying to legitimately get guardianship, I guess, basically. But he, here nor there, because Charlie and, and I think the, the that doctor evaluation in the one of the last scenes is is a good example of like, yeah, Charlie might be a better guy, but he still did kidnap 
his brother. He still held him ransom for $1.5 million. He did drive him across the country and put him in a lot of dangerous situations, card counting in Vegas. <laughs> so, um, you know, how can we help Charlie? You know, I guess if we paint the scenario of the doctors for some reason giving custody to Charlie, you know, I would absolutely want, to a certain extent, Charlie and Raymond in some sort of family therapy where we can help Charlie communicate with, empathize with, assist, but also cope with Charlie's own, you know, anger and frustration that comes, you know, along with these interactions so that he can kind of handle his own stuff before he has to be a support person uh, for Raymond. Right. Because outside of his selfishness and yuppiness, uh, the, the core emotions of frustration and anger there, like those are, those are like valid things that happen to people that have autistic children. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So now we know how we can help Charlie, hopefully. Uh, but at the end of the movie, uh, we do have the entirely weird scene where Raymond gets dropped off on a train to go back to Walbrook Mental Institution and Charlie walks across the street. The movie ends. Yeah, just fade to black. (laughs) I mean, that's what I thought. (laughs) Yeah. But but if we're looking past this part Mm -hmm. um, and we were wondering about Charlie, well, what about Raymond's future? What does it look like back there for him at Walbrook? Yeah, so the the tough thing about an institution is that, you know, they are unlikely to challenge Raymond in the way that Charlie, I'll say mostly unintentionally, but to certain degrees, like intentionally tried to help him grow, help him, like push him, push his skills, push his, you know, ability to be independent. And can maybe do better after all that fixing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the institution, I, my my hope would be that the doctor could see that Raymond actually has made progress, you know, not necessarily for good reasons. He's been forced to in, in a lot of ways, but he has made progress. He does want to dance. Maybe he does want to be able to have relationships, um, not just with his family, but with a woman to a certain degree, you know, whether we believe that's possible for Raymond or not. You know, if this is something that Raymond's interested in, maybe there are accommodations that could be made. For Raymond to have, we might think of as like opportunities to go into the community, you know, to have maybe a part-time job, right. maybe a opportunity to interact with people on a social level. I would love um, if institutions provided more of those opportunities to people. And realistically, they have changed since the 80s that they do do more things like outings and social interactions and uh, lessons and things like that. So some of this stuff has changed, certainly since Raymond came out. But that would be my hope for Raymond, that he yeah. gets to be seen as someone who's a little bit more capable of how he's being than, than how he's being treated. But sadly, if I'm thinking real hard about it, I see Raymond going back to Walbrook and to his routine. Yes. Until he gets older and older. Yes. Let's hope that's not the case, though, right? Well, that's what we would hope. And I think knowing the future of institutionalization after the 80s, a lot of these institutions closed, Mike. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, what happened was people like Raymond and to largely other people were put into the community, put into, you know, quote unquote, community mental health centers where they can maybe go for uh, a work day, but then they'd have to go home or they'd have to go to a group home, a smaller group home, not a full fledged institution. So in some ways that's better because they get more community exposure, but in some ways that's worse because they might not have the full structure that someone like Raymond could really benefit from. Right. Okay, guys, we have to do our ratings now. 
All right, all right. So if you haven't listened to the show before, every week Ryan and I rate what we're covering on a scale of one to five. Ryan does it on the scale of accuracy, and I do it on the scale of how much I like it. Ryan, what are we looking at this week? I saw you were grimacing. Yeah, um, so out of five, Watchmans, because I just love the 80s, the little travel TV. Is that what <laughs> it's, it's called? It's not a Walkman, it's a Watchman. Oh, yeah. wow. So out of five, Watchmans, I gave it a two. I mean, so a lot of the problems that the uh, autism community has with Dustin Hoffman's uh, portrayal is that now, you know, if if you ask someone if they have autism, someone who might be more higher functioning, you know, the second question might be like, are you like Rain Man? Like, do you have any yeah. special powers or special abilities? Yeah, I read that. And, it, it... and basically that that they have to kind of qualify like, no, not like Rain Man. And that's tough because if this is the sort of most popular in, in popular culture example of autism, it's a tough one to be associated with, if right. we're being honest. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I see it's what not, you're saying. It's not, yeah, it's not that there's not realistic aspects of Dustin Hoffman's portrayal, which is why I didn't give it a one, because there absolutely are realistic and to a certain degree empathetic aspects of the portrayal. But because it's portrayed for humor and because it's portrayed in a lot of ways just like as a growth vehicle for Charlie, I really did not like that aspect of it. So right. um, that's why it's a two. Right. And I agree with all that. I do have to say we have to cut the screenwriter, uh, the screenplay writer some slack. And I'll tell you why, because they do mention as soon as you see Raymond that he's savant and autistic. They do say it's two different things. Yes, they do. And, but nobody took it that way because right. that's the only time they refer to it like that. And then they, they say autism the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's my turn and I'm going to do one out of five Wapners. I think it's pretty, pretty obvious. Sure. <laughs> I, th I was thought I was going to battle you for the Wapner to be. <laughs> no, you can have the Wapner just All because right. I don't, I don't have any memory of that show. So I just... Wapner, I think my grandparents yeah. watched it. Yeah. Uh, so <sighs> this was a Oscar winning film Four Oscars, best director, best screenplay, uh, best actor, Dustin Hoffman. I can't remember the other one. And first, let me say, I do want to give credit to the acting all around. I thought Tom Cruise, as much as I, he, this is seriously, this might be my most hated character I've ever seen in cinematic history. Like, I hate Charlie Babbitt. I think there's nothing redeeming about him. I don't think he learned anything in the end. I think he's selfish. I think he's going to continue being selfish. And he should never be in charge of Raymond. That's my opinion. And I'm right. Uh <laughs> No, hard to argue with. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and I'm going to give Dustin Hoffman props too, because whether or not he portrayed uh, autism correctly or not, it's still what he did was probably incredibly difficult. Sure. That's fair. And everyone can tell that I'm stalling. Go ahead, Mike. Because I'm going to give it a two. You don't like Rain Man. I would never, I don't want to watch it again. Okay, I, that's do, fair. I hate Charlie Babbitt too much, but, yeah. you know, and here's the thing. I, I don't know if it didn't age well since the 80s. And I get that there's the goofy hijinks, but like, it's just not funny to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's how we've really changed. Like if this movie was made today, it would be completely different. Yeah. If it would get made at all. Correct. Uh, and if they did that, yeah, if they did, it would be, they would try to be as close to as they could. Um, but the last thing was, is that this was the longest movie in history. I felt like when I watched it, <laughs> I was like, please end. Cause I normally watch what we watch twice and I couldn't do it. All right, all right, that's going to do it for us today. Make sure you stick around for Ryan's closing thoughts. 
But first, we do want to thank Kevin McLeod for all the music that we use on the show. You can find Kevin McLeod and his royalty-free music at incompetech.com. Ryan, thanks for talking with me every week. Thank you, sir. And now for some closing thoughts on the 1988 movie Rain Man. First of all, as we talked about in the episode, autism spectrum disorder is a complex disorder. And as such, it can be confusing and frustrating not only for the person struggling with the symptoms of autism, but also for people trying to help and support them. Often caretakers need as much support as the person with autism does. It's important for families to seek out support sooner rather than later and not get bogged down in blame or anger. If you're worried your child might be on the autism spectrum, taking action sooner is incredibly important. Unfortunately, there can be a waiting period to get an official diagnostic evaluation. So in the meantime, learn about autism and learn about resources that might exist in your area. Finally, here are some national resources to check out for more information. AutismSpeaks.com is a fantastic organization where you can learn more about the autism spectrum and get advice on what steps to take in each part of the process. AutismSupportNetwork.com is another website where you can learn about conferences and additional educational opportunities to find support. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at poppsych 101 We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych 101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Poppsych 101 is now on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Ingolstadt. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.